Good morning. You guys may be seated. Welcome to Grace Life. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Matt, and uh, we are so glad that you're here with us this morning. Uh, we know there's a lot of places you could have chosen to be, but we are happy and blessed that you've chosen to be here to worship God with us. And that's why we're here, to make a big deal about Jesus and to worship our King. Amen? Amen. Uh, if you w- would like to connect with us, whether it's your first time here, your 500th time here, um, everything that uh, you need to know is on our app. It's called the Church Center app. And you can scan this QR code right here, and it'll take you to that screen you see. Um, it'll bring up events that are coming up. It'll bring up the, the passage of Scripture that we'll be in today. Um, you can give through the app, all those things. We don't pass a plate here, but if you'd like to um, give to the mission here and partner with us in that way, it's through the app. We also have a, a giving box in the back on your way out. Um, but yes, feel free to take out your phone. I won't be offended. Scan the QR code, and you can connect with us um, in that way. Um, but as we always do, I'd like to read our Grace Life welcome. This is a tradition we do here um, because we need it every single week. Um, it's, it's just an incredible way we can um, know who we are and know who God is and what he offers to us. So I want to read this welcome over us this morning. To all who mourn and need comfort, to all who are weary and need rest, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and need strength, to all who sin and need a savior, and to all who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and to whoever else will come. Grace Life Church opens wide her doors in the name of Jesus Christ and offers welcome. Now, before Tommy comes up, um, we're going to have my brother Kyle here share. Um, We're instilling a new rhythm here at Grace Life where we want to hear stories of um, how Jesus has worked in the lives of our people. Um, Last month, we heard from Melissa Perry of how Jesus grabbed a hold of her heart and changed her life forever. And we just know this is an incredible way to, to maybe add some color to the truths that we talk about here each and every week, to see how God, through Jesus, can really transform a life. So I'm excited to hear from Kyle. Um, so let's welcome him as he comes to share. All right. I am excited to do this. I wrote, uh, I wrote some points down that I wanted to say because... I tend to talk a lot, and I don't want to be up here for an hour doing this, and I'm sure uh, Tommy doesn't want me to do that either. So, (laughs) All right. Um, Yeah, so Matt asked me if I could share my testimony, and I thought, yeah, for sure. And I wanted to write it down because, I mean, I've shared it before with people, but um, there's just so much that God has done in my life that I want to share, and I tend to... uh, go everywhere if I don't have something written down, because I want to share all the details with you, because it's just amazing how God's worked in my life. Um, and as I look back over my life now, I just, I see God's hand in everything, and everything that has happened to me, whether good or bad, I see his hand in it all. And his divine providence is, it's a crazy thing for me to wrap my head around, because I just, I just can't understand how he can use every single detail of my life. He knows before it even happens what's going to happen. He knows how he's going to use it. And it's, I may not even notice it until many years down the road. And there's things that have happened to me when I was, I don't know, 10, 11 years old that wasn't until just recently I realized how God used that in my life. 
I grew up in a troubled home. Um, my stepdad was an alcoholic, and there was a lot of uh, there was just a lot of fighting going on in my home, and it affected me a lot emotionally, as you can tell, <laughs> um, as a child and even as an adult. I started uh, substance abuse at a young age, and that was kind of my way to help me cope with it, to help me kind of suppress the realities of my life, of all the stuff that was going on. My family went to church, though. So, you know, you would think, hey, maybe that would help. We were there every time the doors were open. We were there with our, our masks on, hiding what was really going on at home. I mean, a few people knew, but for the most part, we had it, uh, we had it hidden pretty well. And growing up, I guess I always thought that I was a Christian because I went to church every day, pretty much every day. My grandpa was a pastor. My great-grandpa was a pastor. So I thought, you know what? Yeah, I'm a Christian because of all this stuff that I'm doing. And although I was in the church all the time, I never knew the God that I claimed to know. I knew the God that I wanted to know, but I did not know the God of the Bible, and I think deep down I knew that. Um, but it was through my unrighteousness that I was suppressing the truth. And as I look back, I see the Lord constantly calling me to him. And oftentimes, I would just suppress it and move on and try not to think much about it. I was never at peace, though, doing the things that I was doing. You know, whether I was at parties, doing whatever, I was just never at peace. It always seemed like there was someone or there was something calling me away from that life, and I just didn't know what it was. God would put people into my life to show his love for me, and I did not want to see it. I wanted to avoid it and keep doing what I was doing. I was having fun. And um, Bill Roth was one of them. And when I first met him, <laughs> I was still dead in my sins, and Bill knew that. And um, I remember every time he would come over with my brother, I would get irritated because I just wanted to do what I was doing. I didn't want to worry about it, but he always shared Jesus with me and shared the love that the Lord had for me, and I didn't want to hear it. I was like, you don't understand. You don't know what I'm going through. Just let me live my life. And then again, through my unrighteousness, I was suppressing the truth, and I, I, I just wanted to go deeper and deeper into what I was doing and continue having fun. And even through my dad's death, God tried calling me to him. Growing up, I never saw my dad much. He and my mom divorced at a young age. And he, uh, my dad grew up in a different era where the men do not show love like the women do. The men weren't very nurturing and caring. Um, I saw him maybe a few times a year, a few times a year, and I was, I was very mad at him. And it was through God's divine providence that he brought my, bad, my dad back into our family. And it wasn't the way that maybe I had hoped. I was an unbeliever, so I didn't really uh, think anything about it. But he had gotten really sick, and he was brought back to Florida. And Bill and my brother and my mom and a few other people took care of him as he was literally just wasting away. And then I saw, as an unbeliever, I saw my dad through his pain and his suffering, just skin and bones pretty much. I saw him just worshiping the Lord. 
I remember one night, and again, while all this is going on, I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a believer at this point. Um, they were singing hymns to him in his bedroom, and he was just praising the Lord the best that he could through his weakness and his sickness. And a few days before my, my dad passed away, I went into his room, and he talked to me the best that he could. You know, he was weak at this point, and he said that he told me that he was sorry for not being there, and he told me that he loved me. And the Lord used that moment, even as the unbeliever that I was, that I could forgive my dad and love him and move on from all the hurt that I had. And that was another way that God showed me the hope that is in Jesus Christ, was though my dad was wasting away and sick and broken, he was looking forward to his future glory. He was looking forward to his eternal home. And so as a couple of years went on, I was outside by myself one night behind my mom's house doing what I was doing. And it felt as though the Lord just burst through my heart. He bursted through this wall that I had in my heart and he said, you are mine. You are my child. And he called me out of that life of sin that I was living He revealed to me that I was a broken sinner. Although I grew up in the church, I did not know him, and I did not know Jesus, and I did not know the saving power that he had, although I claimed I did. But the Holy Spirit totally changed my life that night. And I quit everything that I was doing, and I gave my life to him, and I've definitely had struggles since then. Some of those things have have come back up, but... I started living my life for the Lord, and I knew the God of the Bible. And then I see today, even many years later, that God has drawn so many full circles in my life. One that I tend to laugh about is that he brought me back here to Deltona High School. Now, when I graduated, I was so happy. I was like, man, I'm done with school. I barely, it was by the grace of God that I even graduated. I hated homework. I hated just coming to school. I was like, man, I'm out of here. I'm free. (laughs) And then here I am (laughs) every Sunday here back at Deltona High School. People say God does not have a sense of humor, and I challenge that. Because I never thought walking through these hallways as the sinner that I was that I would be here worshiping my king every Sunday, living for him. And coming here to worship him in, 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 with freedom. And now, as many of you know, I'm going to Bible college right now. Right across the street from where I grew up going to church. Growing up going to church, I never looked across the street and said, one day I want to go to school over there. God has just drawn full circles in my life and it's crazy to look at. And in the last couple of weeks, I've just been looking back on my life and seeing how God's hand has been in it all. And I can't help but wonder why God would save someone like me. If you knew some of the things that I've done or some of the the things that have gone through my mind, you probably wouldn't want to talk to me. (laughs) And God saw all of that. He didn't see anything in me. He, He saved me fully by his grace and his mercy. There was nothing inside of me that deserved saving. And, you know, we my professor said this the other day. He said, We oftentimes, when we're going through trials, we ask, why me, Lord, like we talked about a couple weeks ago. But we never ask, why me, when something good happens. 
It's as if we think we deserve it. But I know I don't deserve God's grace and mercy. God could have struck me down at any moment when I was dead in my sins, running away from him, rejecting him, slapping him in the face. But he sustained me and allowed me, he gave me the breath that I used to do all that stuff. I do not deserve to be saved. I'm not a very smart person. I'm ashamed to say I graduated high school with a C average. <laughs> to me, that was an A+, plus, okay? I, I was happy about that. I can barely count to 10, but God chose me before I ever knew him. God chose me before I even thought about coming to him. And I was reading this morning, while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. And when I was running away time and time again, God was chasing me, and he never gave up on me. And I'm so thankful by his grace that I am saved. It is by his grace and his mercy that I'm saved. It's nothing that I can do, but it is his sovereign hand in it all. I don't know why he saved me, but he did, and I'm thankful for it. So I'm done preaching now. Thank you for allowing me to share with you. So um, we'll turn it over to Tommy. Worship team, thank you, Matt, and thank you, Kyle. Good morning, Grace Life. It is really good to be back in this pulpit. I've missed you guys. And, uh, you know, I'll take a couple of weeks off for vacation and preaching obligations at other places. And uh, these young guys preach on two of the hardest books in the Bible Job and Ecclesiastes, and they preach the whole book. (laughs) And now I'm coming back to you, and I'm going to preach on uh, one of the most difficult chapters in the Bible. Romans chapter 7. So uh, make your way to that passage if you would, and we're going to read it together. Romans chapter 7. If you don't have a, uh, a hard copy Bible, I'd love to give you one as a gift before you leave the church. Come and find me or one of the greeters. We've got a box of ESV hardback Bibles. We'd love to put one into your hands. But if not, if you have a phone app or some other smart device, you can just flip that. Or if you don't have either of those, we've bailed you out. We'll have it on the overhead here. It's Romans chapter 7. Before we uh, get started, I want to pray and ask God's blessing. So pray, pray with me. Lord Jesus, would you please, right now, in this very moment, help us to sanctify you in our hearts. Help us to just stand with attention before your word, realizing what we're about to engage in. We're about to open up our, our hearts and our lives to be challenged by you in a good way, to be encouraged by you, to be comforted, to be corrected. If there are ways that we are thinking wrongly about the Christian life, about our salvation, about the means of of growth and change, and ways that we become holy and obedient to you, I pray that you would arrest us, Lord, before we go too far, as many people have, as Paul's going to talk about later in this chapter. Pray that you would open our eyes to see a better way, a way that we can serve in the Spirit in a new way and not by the letter. Help us to discover or rediscover today the power of the gospel, the power and the beauty and the truth of your grace. And as this analogy 
tells us to, to meet our new husband, Lord, and to be done with the old marriage through the death that we died with you, being united to you. These are deep things. Some of them are mysterious and controversial. I pray that you would, you would help us. Anoint me as a teacher. Protect your sheep here today from hearing anything that would be confusing or misguided or in error. I pray that you would anoint me to, to speak the truth as it is in, in Jesus, as I, I found it to be in your word. And I pray for these next few weeks that we're going to spend in this chapter, there will be a, a powerful blessing upon this congregation. And those watching from home, as we follow along and seek to understand what it is your spirit is teaching us, we know that this is inspired by your spirit. He is the author, and, and therefore he will be the interpreter, and he will be the one who empowers and makes this come alive. It will be more than ink on a page. Uh, but only if your spirit comes. So please send your spirit now, Lord, to help us understand what this means and apply it to our life and to leave here floating on air, Lord, uh, being inflated by your grace. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we, uh, oh, we were going to read. I'm sorry. You can, you can put the scripture back up. Romans chapter 7. We're just going to read the first six verses today so you can follow along. Romans chapter 7. Verses 1 through 6, I don't know that we'll finish all of them, but we'll, we'll do what we can. We've got a lot to, to do in today's service. Today is First Sunday Communion, so this is going to be a great time together. Romans 7, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers... You also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now... We are released from the law. Having died to that which held us captive. So that we serve in the new way of the spirit. And not in the old way of the written code. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Now I want to tell you a secret that you probably already know. If you've been attending here or been watching from home for any length of time. My, my hope, my prayer, my goal for this church is that this church, this group of people, this place, Grace Life, could be the kind of church where anybody can grow and where anybody can belong and where anybody can serve and flourish and thrive and be healthy and grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And that... Another way to say that is that I want Grace Life Church to be the kind of place, the kind of group, the kind of people, the kind of gathering where you can, can produce fruit, fruit that abounds, fruit that's healthy, fruit that comes from a, a heart that is submissive 
to God and fruit that is genuine and that is joyful. It's, it's not fruit that, that you give up to God begrudgingly. It's not fruit that comes out of slavish fear. It's fruit that's healthy. It's, it's fruit that gives glory to God. It's fruit that's appealing, that's compelling, and it's a great testimony of the world. Say, you know what? I don't know what's going on in that place with those people, but they've got something that I don't have and that I need. And I want to be a part of that. That's, that's been my prayer for this church, a church that bears fruit to God, where we can see Jesus more clearly, where we can love him more earnestly, and where we can serve him and one another more faithfully. That's really the point of our salvation. And that's going to be one of the first points in this message. Here's the outline today. Uh, just got three points, and this is going to be a... a I always say this is going to be a fast sermon or a short sermon, but I don't, want to, I don't want to start out lying to you, so I'm going to do my best. I'm not going to cover everything I want to cover today. I can already see that, but that's, going to, that's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll double back down. Can you guys see those words? These are long points, and the reason they're long is because this, this is a really controversial passage in the Bible, this whole chapter. Not necessarily the first part we're going to look at. It may be. It may be new, you may have never heard a sermon like this today that tells you your relationship to the law of God now that you're a Christian. This is something a lot of preachers, I believe a lot of preachers struggle to communicate this because they're so scared that they're going to be misunderstood and misheard. And that people in the congregation are going to say, praise God, we're under grace. Goodbye, law. We don't need you anymore. Uh, We don't need to observe you. We don't need to know what you say. We don't need to obey you anymore. And then they fall into this heresy called antinomianism. That's a fancy $50 word. Anti means against. Uh, nomian is, is a, a Greek word for law, nomos. So uh, antinomian is against law. We hate God's law. We're no longer under that law. So goodbye law. We're under grace. We'll live however we want. We'll sin because God gets glory that way too, right? I think some preachers are really scared uh, that that's the way they're going to be heard if they preach this passage the way I believe it deserves to be preached. But I've asked God to help me, help me overcome that fear. Help me to say things that are going to sound shocking and sound surprising and also sound glorious and sound wonderful and, and, and prove liberating to help you bear the kind of fruit that this passage talks about that is my prayer for this church. So that's why these points are so long and a little bit clumsy maybe, okay? Here we, here we go. Point number one, God wants you, God wants your, I should say, joyful, heartfelt obedience. Now that's not... That's not really a shocker, is it? That's not a Betty Crocker shocker. Nothing earth-shattering about that, except those adjectives there. I don't want to just say, God wants your obedience, because everybody already knows that, don't they? Don't you know that God wants you to obey? You know that. But what you may not understand is that God wants a certain kind of obedience, and that the thing that drives you to obey, the incentive for your obedience, the motive for your obedience is just as important. I'm going to actually argue today The reasons why you obey are more important than your obedience itself. Because you can render a kind of obedience to God that actually stinks, that God hates. You know, God said that to Israel. He said, you know what? What you're doing at your feast and your festivals, your fastings, tearing your sackcloth. He said, won't you tear your heart instead of your clothes? He said, it's a stench in my nostril. It stinks. It's an abomination to me. And they were shocked. Because they thought, we're obeying, we're observing things, we're doing what God commands, but he hated it. Why? Because their motive was wrong, therefore their real fruit wasn't really fruit. It was rotten. Point number two, 
while we are bound to God's moral law, point number one is impossible. While you are bound and living under God's moral law, you can't render the kind of obedience, you can't offer to God the kind of heartfelt, joyful, genuine, authentic obedience that he's actually wanting you to, to render to him. And then point number three, God offers release into a new, better way of life that Romans 7 is going to tell us about. So how about that for a mouthful? Three long points, three long sentences. Uh, let's look at them together. Point number one, God wants your joyful, heartfelt obedience. He wants your love, but he doesn't want it to be a, a begrudging love, that you do it because you're afraid you're going to be judged. God wants your love that's out of gratitude, not out of guilt. Does that make sense? Look at, uh, look at Romans chapter 7, verse 4. Let's look at that first. Look what he says here. This is a key passage in the, in the, the scriptures we're looking at today. Verse 4, he says, likewise, and we're going we're to not read through it chronologically. I'm going to skip around a little bit for the sake of making better sense to you. Romans 7, 4, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. Obviously, that's Jesus. And then we have, in order that we may bear fruit to God. So if I were to ask you, what is the bottom line point of you becoming a Christian? How, how might you answer that? Like, what's the big idea? What does God want from you? What are you supposed to be doing? What's the point of all this? The cross, the burial, the resurrection, the New Testament, the Bible, the Christian religion, the Christian faith. What is it that God wants out of you? Here, here it is, Romans 7, 4. You can circle that or underline it. In order that we may bear fruit to God. That's the bottom line. That's what God wants from you. He wants fruit. He wants it to be beautiful fruit. He wants it to be healthy fruit. He wants it to be the kind of fruit that gives glory to him. And you say, well, can you be more specific? I sure can because the very end of this passage, he says, we're supposed to serve in a new way, a better way. We're supposed to serve through the spirit and not through the letter. So you say, okay, he wants us to bear fruit and it's produced by the spirit. So there's another passage in your Bible in Galatians 5, verse 22, and it talks about fruit of the Spirit. A lot of people actually memorize this list. I bet some of you could pop, pop, pop it off right now. Love, peace, joy, patience, gentleness, self-control, and a few others, goodness, uh, kindness. Do you know what it says at the very end of that passage? This used to really confused me. At the end of that passage in Galatians 5, it says, against such there is no law. Isn't that interesting? Why is that? Because the law doesn't produce that, and so the law can't kill that. The Spirit of God produces that. It's, it's heartfelt obedience that comes from, a, from a, a, a deep place that's been changed and transformed by the grace of God. That's the kind of fruit that God and, and, and Christ want from you and I. That's the kind of fruit that the Holy Spirit produces. Whenever Jesus was talking to his disciples in John 15, he said, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. And then a few sentences later, he says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So we're talking about joyful fruit that's healthy, that's compelling, that's Holy Spirit wrought, and that can't be produced or killed by anything else. That's the kind of fruit that God wants. Healthy. 
not just obedience, but the right kind of obedience. And I, and I want to tell you a story to help you understand this. And I may have told this, this is our seventh year. I think I've told this in the, the first year maybe I, I share this with you. I grew up in the 80s. Shocker. <laughs> I actually love the 80s. There's been no decade like that since. Anybody with me? All right. You're my people. <laughs> I attended a public elementary school in northeast Arkansas. And I had a wonderful experience. Some of my fondest childhood memories arose from my time there, my five years, six years at that school. Things were a lot simpler then, but I know that's probably just my selected memory. We said the Pledge of Allegiance every morning. We uh, seemed to have a longer recess, although we probably didn't. We took naps. In kindergarten, we took naps on mat with slobber everywhere, and then we had chocolate milk out of the carton. Man, those were the days. Nobody was shooting up schools. We didn't have to worry about that. We watched a movie once a month, and it wasn't dirty. <laughs> we were all united to take a bite out of crime together, and we knew that only we could prevent forest fires. There was, all that stuff was going on during that time. Our school was uh, really small. It was only K-5. through fifth. There was no preschool. There were under 200 students, and there were only about 20 teachers and faculty, including the uh, janitor and everybody else in the principal. And we knew all of them and we loved all of them. Now, one memory that I look back on with a frown in my face is a certain substitute teacher that was always at our school. I don't think there was a day that she wasn't at that school subbing for one, for one teacher or another. And her name was Mrs. North. Mrs. North. She was a substitute teacher. And she must have been one of the principal's favorites because she was like the number one pick. There's no better way to describe Mrs. North. I actually wish I had a picture, but that wouldn't, that wouldn't be good. And I don't have one anyway. Um, there's no better way to describe her than to tell you she was a gigantic female Grinch. She, was, she had to be over six feet tall. And she had this permanent frown fixed on her face. She was an imposing figure. She was an intimidating woman. Nothing about her was, was pleasant. To look at her was to believe you were in trouble. Have you guys ever known anybody like that, a teacher like that, I don't know, maybe a parent like that, an authoritative figure in your life? She wore a natural uh, frown. She spoke in a nasally voice that hurt your ears. Her breath smelled, <laughs> and she would hover over you so you smelt it. Um, we feared her. We dreaded her, and we, are, we obeyed her. We obeyed her. She got exactly what she wanted out of us, complicit obedience. A quiet class. We did our work. She would show up and she would write two or three rules on the board and point to them. And basically, her motto was, do this or else. And we knew what the else was and we didn't want to experience the else. <laughs> do this or else. That was Mrs. North's MO. So we obeyed her, but it wasn't heartfelt. She showed up for one reason only, to make sure that every single kid did his work and behaved perfectly. Period. She expected it. She demanded it. She had no leniency. She had no mercy. She had no compassion. She had no understanding. You didn't ask her to go to the bathroom. She wouldn't understand that you were about to pee in your seat. You didn't ask her to sharpen your pencil. She had no compassion for dull or broken lead at the end of your number two, right? You didn't ask her to go to the school nurse for a nosebleed or for a hurt tummy. If you fell at, at, at recess and broke your leg, you didn't call for Mrs. North. You didn't want her over there. We obeyed her 
that we were not happy about it. Now listen, if the job description for a substitute teacher is law and order, then she deserved an award of some kind because she did her stuff. She did it well. No question about it. She had no tolerance for mischief. Nobody laughed in her class. If Mrs. North was your substitute, you had a bad day. I can still remember the necklace she wore, the way she wore her hair, her voice, and the scowl on her face, and I can definitely remember the smell of her breath. Now, I want to be fair. Uh, I want to be fair. Probably some of that I've unintentionally overstated, but that was, that was the uh, perception that I had. That's the memory that I have of her. She was not just mean, um, necessarily. She just wasn't nice. Do you know what I mean? She wasn't a mean lady. She just wasn't nice. She wasn't friendly. She wasn't kind. She wasn't pleasant. She was like a robot. She was programmed to get one thing out of us, compliance and obedience. And she did. If you gave her any trouble, she gave it to you. And her name was appropriate because she was as cold as ice. Um, you were like a, a flower that would wilt in, in Mrs. North's class. Now, let me tell you about another teacher I had, okay? This was the first teacher I ever had, and she set the bar really high, and everything was downhill after that. She was my kindergarten teacher, and her name was Mrs. Henry. And she had thick, long, flowing red hair, and I loved her. <laughs> I, I actually did. I mean, I was in love with her. <laughs> I wanted, to, uh, I wanted to marry my, my kindergarten teacher. She was beautiful. She had a pleasant smile. She had a soft voice that always sounded like she was smiling because she was always smiling. She showed up every day, and she did not write the class rules on the board. We knew what the rules were. She didn't have to remind us what they were. We wanted to obey her rules because we wanted to please her. We knew that she cared about us, and she had compassion. She was tender. You know, I told you that Times were simpler back then, and people weren't showing up at schools and shooting them up. But had somebody with a crazy look in their eyes showed up in her classroom brandishing a weapon, I have no doubt Mrs. North would have taken one for the entire class, or two or three. She would have stood between us and harm's way. She believed the best about us. She cried the last day of kindergarten. She cried um, because we were all moving up to a different class, and she actually was engaged to the PE teacher and would be getting married and would leave, and I hated our PE teacher for that. <laughs> Never forgave him for that. I can't ever remember any students who had a complaint against Mrs. Henry. She loved us all, and we loved her back. We wanted to please her. She was filled with empathy. She went out of her way to know us and to understand us and to help us. Mrs. North viewed her job description as giving, getting every student to obey perfectly and to work quietly. She was there to regulate. Mrs. Henry viewed her job description to help us learn, to help us grow, to help us flourish, to help us thrive, and to help us be happy. Now listen, both of those teachers could get obedience out of a classroom, but they were different kinds of obedience. And, and that's a true story. What I've told you is a true story. I'm tempted to tell you, you can view that story as an allegory and that Mrs. North is what? What's Mrs. North representing this story? The law, that's right. And what does Mrs. Henry represent? Grace, that's right. And that's really, I could just sh shut the Bible and we could pray and go home because that's, that's all that Paul is saying in Romans chapter 7 is the way that you and I relate to the law 
has changed. Something has fundamentally changed about the law. The law does not have any power to save you. You know that. Paul has spent four or five chapters drilling that into our heads. We are justified by faith alone and Christ alone, not through the law, not by the law. The law can't help you. The law can show you what a changed life looks like, but it can't give you the power to achieve or perform that changed life at all. The Christian life, you could compare it to a balloon. Uh, what's the purpose for a balloon? To float, right? To float. And if the Christian life, if, if you and I are balloons and we're supposed to float, there's two ways that you can make a balloon float. You can fill it up with the breath from your lungs and tie a knot in it and whack it around and keep it in the air. Now, you're going to chuckle, but I want to tell you something. I think there are a lot of Christians that are living their Christian life trying to bear fruit unto God like a balloon that's filled up with, with human air that's not rich in oxygen. And the only way they're in the air is if they get smacked around. And that's what the law will do. It will smack you around. You'll be, you'll be bearing fruit, a, a kind of fruit, but the Bible's going to say that fruit is death. It's not from the heart. It's not genuine, it's not sincere, it doesn't please God, and it's not doing you or the people around you any good. I heard a guy preaching a sermon the other day, and he, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said these words, I'm here to smack you around. And you know what, there's a lot of preaching that's like that, and sometimes give me a good prophetic smackdown message that says, hey look, your blue is going in the wrong direction, smack it in the right direction, I need that. I'm sure I've given that a few times. I've certainly been on the receiving end of it. But if that is the only diet of exhortation you get in a church or you get in your Christian life, if that's the kind of sermons you put on your podcast, people are constantly smacking you around, I want to tell you something, man. You're going to be a miserable Christian. And you may be the last person to realize you're a miserable Christian. Say, give me a good, hard sermon, pastor. Smack me around. What do you mean by that? Tell you what you're supposed to be doing? I would imagine most of you already know that. The problem is you can't find the strength or the power to do it. Now, preach me a sermon that tells me how can I float back in the air. See, there's another way to make a balloon float too. You know what it is? Fill it up with helium and watch it rise in the air. And my, my, the way I view my goal as a pastor, honestly, every single week I want to fill you up with the grace of God so that you can float. There may be some smackdowns when we get to them in the Bible, but they're going to be filled with love. You know that Paul smacked down the Galatians? That is the book in the Bible that you're going to hear the most powerful exhortational language you've ever heard from any prophet or apostle. You know why, you know why Paul so irate in that book? You know why he says things like, Who has bewitched you? You foolish, be, you foolish Galatians! You're cutting yourself off from Christ. You know why he's so upset? Because they have resorted back to the law as their power... And motivation for obedience. And he says, what are you doing? I planted this church. I've taught you better than this. So, point number one. God wants from you and God wants from me. Heartfelt, joyful, sincere fruit. Verse 4 of chapter 7. Now, here's point number 2. You ready for this one? What was point number 2? Let me read it again. While bound to God's moral law, that's impossible. This is what surprises people and shocks people. And you say, oh no, here he goes. 
You're going to smack the law around. No, I'm not going to smack the law around. Because listen, Paul's going to defend the law. That's going to be the next passage we look at next week probably. We get there. He's going to say the law is good and the law is just and the law is holy. And it's a perfect expression of God's moral will. But the problem is the law doesn't have any power to help you. You know, John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he wrote a poem that has helped me. I've laid in my bed at night and recited this to myself. Run, John, run. The law demands, but gives you neither feet nor hands. Much better things the gospel brings. It bids you fly and gives you wings. (laughs) Right? Doesn't the gospel bring a better promise than the law does? You know what the law says? Do this or else. That's what the law says. The law thunders from Mount Sinai. I think it's been a few weeks. Maybe we were back in chapter 4 or 5. And I read for you in Exodus, the middle of the book, around chapter 20. I read to you the vivid and gripping electric uh, description of when the children of Israel came to the base of Mount Sinai. And God was going to deliver his law to them. You remember what it, you remember what it was? There, was? there was like puppies there and, and kittens on the mountain. There was a rainbow up there. Was that what happened? No. It was this imposing sheer cliff of a mountain. And there was thunder and there was lightning and there was fire and it trembled and it shook. And this voice of God thundered from the mountain. You remember what the people said? They, they said, hide us. Don't let him speak to us anymore unless we die. You speak to us, Moses. You know, God was trying to communicate something to us there. This law is inviolable. You can't, it's inflexible. You can't bend it. You can't even really break it. It will break you. If you're looking for compassion, if you're looking for mercy, if you're looking for sympathy, if you're looking for understanding, don't go to the law to get it. You're not going to get it from the law. You're going to have to find it some other place. And I think what Paul is doing here is he is whetting our appetite for deliverance from the law. (laughs) From release from the law. That's what the verse actually says. Let's look at it here. Look at verse, I think it's verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for what? Death. So under the law, you're bearing fruit. What kind of fruit, fruit is it? It's dead fruit. It's death fruit. It's fruit you don't want to touch. You don't want to eat that. I don't think I put the right passage in there for that. Let me read it. Let me read it right here. Verse 6. I did. My bad. Verse 6. Look at this. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Now, I I want to repeat that. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. What is it telling us that the law did to us right there in that first part? What did it do? You can say it out loud. It held us captive. The law held us captive. It bound us, right? We were in some sense imprisoned by the law. So that, he's saying, now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not of the old way of the written code. So here's what Paul is telling us. That's the the reason there's this strange analogy about marriage at the very beginning. He's saying, look, every single human being 
born into this world is married to the law. The law is your authority. The law leads you. The law governs you. You're under the law's jurisdiction, and there's no escape from it. It's, it's like an arranged marriage that you don't really like, but you're stuck with. In fact, let me read those first three verses to you in Romans, in Romans 7. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law, and, he, and when he says law here, there's theologians that debate, is he talking about the Ten Commandments? Is he talking about the ceremonial law and the sacrificial law? Is he talking, what's he talking about? He's talking about the law as a principle. We all understand this law. Do this or else, wherever you find that principle, he's talking about that. But to summarize this passage, he's talking about God's moral law found anywhere in the Bible. Any imperative, any commandment. He's speaking to us who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. What is the Apostle Paul saying? He's giving you this analogy. And I love the Apostle Paul because he knows he's going to make a point that's controversial. So he starts with a point that's not controversial. He says, hey, look, all of you know that there's law and we're all under the law until we die, right? I mean, you've got to pay your mortgage while you're alive. You can say, no, I don't. I'll skip it. Okay, go ahead and skip it and just wait. You'll get another letter in the mail, right? <laughs> that mortgage has got to be paid. You're, you're under that law. Now, when you die, I got good news for you. When you die, you don't have to make your mortgage payment anymore. That's right. You don't have to pay the bills, utilities, none of that. You're free from that. You've been released. So Paul says everybody understands how the law operates. And Paul also knew that everyone understood how the marriage laws operate and, and, and that time and place in the world. Both in Jewish law and in Roman law, if you married somebody, you were bound to them for life. For better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, for sickness and in health. Everyone understood that. You know what's, what's kind of sad? Paul couldn't make that same point today. He would have to preach a few sermons first because not everybody would understand that. Now, of course, Paul in other places tells us that there is a concession for divorce in certain situations for adultery, for abuse, and for abandonment. But the point that he's making here is that marriage is what God has joined together, what? Let no man separate. Everyone would have understood that. Paul is saying, you are born in an arranged marriage with the law. And as long as you are alive, you are under the authority of the law. You fall under the condemnation of the law when you violate it, and you're under the, the leadership of the law. So that's bad news. That's a bad marriage. That's a bad arrangement that you're stuck in, and you can't get out of. There's nothing that you or I can do about it. Have you felt that before? Have you felt that arranged marriage before? And say, man, this is terrible. This is a burden. This is crushing me. This is killing me. How do I find relief from this? This is what's going to lead ultimately to Romans chapter 8 verse 1. Which says what? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what Paul's going to tell us is, hey, I have good news for you, Christians. Um, there's been a, a, a change in status. You are no longer married to the law. You're like, great, man, the law died. No, the law didn't die. Uh, the law wasn't actually the problem. 
the law, remember, is good and holy and just. The problem was who? You, right. The problem was us. The law didn't change. Listen, one gazillion years from now, the Ten Commandments, as a, as a code reflecting God's perfect moral character, is still going to be true. Lying is still going to be bad. Cheating is still going to be bad. Murder is still going to be bad in a gazillion years because the law didn't need to die. It needed to be kept, and you and I couldn't keep it. That was the problem. You and I were in an arranged marriage. We couldn't win. So something had to happen to us. Change had to be wrought inside of us, and we couldn't do it. We were stuck, but God did something. <laughs> Isn't this amazing? Look at this. It says in verse five here. No, six. But now, that's one of those glorious buts in the Bible, right? But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. What does he mean having died? Well, you and I died. You know, you have to, you have to die to be released from the law, and we died. You have to die to be released from a marriage, and, and we were released from our marriage to the law because we died with Christ. This is Paul again circling back and, and, and explaining to us our union with Christ. Man, this is such a better marriage than the one we had before under the law of God. You know, when you're, when you're married, your loyalty's changed. There's no part of your life that's untouched by your marriage. And when we were under the law, we, we faced condemnation over and over again. That's, that's one of the, the top things that changed. We are released from the law. We're not released from having to obey the law. Listen to me. This is really important. This is what we died to and are free from in the law. We're free from its condemnation. We're free from its condemnation. In fact, I'm going to say something that's going to sound shocking and maybe controversial, but I want you to hear this, and I want you to think about it this week, okay? There should never be a time when you or I, as a Christian, no matter what we have done, no matter how grievously we have sinned against God or violated His commandments, that you or I should come under condemnation as a Christian. That should never happen, ever. And if it's happening, and if you're doing it to yourself, you don't understand this. And you're living a life that is miserable. And you have not understood the change, the transformation that Christ has, has wrought inside your heart. Because you are not under the condemning dynamic and the condemning power of the law any longer. You've been released from that. And you say, now wait a minute, hang on pastor. You're scaring me a little bit. <laughs> this sounds so risky. If you're telling me I'm under the grace of God and no matter how I live my life, I'm never going to face the condemning uh, power or the accusing finger of the law anymore, then you've just taken away my incentive for holy living. Here's my response to you. Then I have some crushing news for you, and you better brace yourself. If that's true for you, the only incentive that you have ever had to live a holy life has been the wrong one. It's been the wrong one. If the only way you live your Christian life is out of fear for do this or else, friends, you're still living under the law, and it's a miserable way to live your life. Your, Mrs. North is your substitute teacher. She's your drill sergeant. And you're bearing fruit, but you're bearing the wrong kind of fruit. And you're living in insecurity. Here, here's what will happen if you live under the law. You will either be proud or you will be in despair. You'll be proud because you think you're crushing it and you're killing it like the Pharisees were. Or you'll be in despair when you finally see yourself or who you truly are, which is what the law is really intended to do. Then you'll be crushed and you'll think, well, then why even bother? I can't do this. 
See, when you're living married to Christ, you'll realize when you sin, you're not sinning against law, you're sinning against love. That is, a, that is such a much more powerful motivator. Do you know why I don't sin against my wife? I mean, I do sin against her sometimes in, in unintentional ways, and sometimes in intentional ways when I, don't know, when I don't do what she asked me to do. But listen, my incentive to please my wife is so much greater than if she just had a to-do list on the refrigerator for me and said, Tommy, do this and treat me like this or else. She might get some obedience out of me, but I wouldn't be a happy husband. I wouldn't be a happy man. Do you know why I, I live to please my wife? And when she does ask me to do something that's reasonable, <laughs> why I do it? Because I love her. I want to make her happy. I want to please her because of all the ways that she has served me. If that's true at a human level, how much more incentive will we have when we see how Christ has stooped to serve us? And if you're married to Christ, listen, you've been given a new name. <laughs> when you change marriage statuses as a woman, you're given the name of your, of your groom, of your, of your husband, right? What a name we have. You talk about wanting dignity and honor, wanting to be elevated, a better status. Man, we're called Christians. That means little Christs. Everything that God owns you own. You know, when I married my wife, don't tell her. She's in the back. I, uh, all her student debt, guess who inherited it? Me. Guess who had to pay it off? Her. <laughs> when you are married to Christ, do you inherit any debt? No, he did. <laughs> he inherited your debt, and he paid it all to the T, to the letter. It's all paid in full. That's why you can't ever be condemned anymore. But do you know what you inherited? <laughs> Man, you came out smelling sweet on that deal. You are a joint heir with Christ. Everything he owns, you own. And it says you're seated together in the heavenly places with him. Man, hallelujah, that makes me want to charge hell with a water pistol and do backflips. You tell me what's a better incentive to obey. That... Or do this or else. Listen, guys, do this or else doesn't work. It doesn't work. It may on the outside. You know what Jesus said of the Pharisees? He said, in, in one of the most scathing rebukes you will ever find in the Bible, i got, I got to close with this, Matthew 23. He said, woe to you, scribes and you Pharisees, you hypocrites, you brood of vipers. You will cross land and sea to make one convert and make him twice the son of hell as you yourselves are. He said, you go out of, the, out of your way to observe the finer points of the law, tithing down to the mint leaf and cumin in your garden. But then he said this, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, which are justice and mercy and compassion. He said, you're hypocrites. What he was saying is, your incentive for holy living is not working because you're under the law and it's crushing you and it's killing you and you don't even know it. And I think we understand that for salvation. Of course, duh, pastor. We know that we're not saved by law-keeping. That's right, you know that. But you know what you forget and I forget? We forget that we're not sanctified by law-keeping either. That's what we forget. We think, you know what, I'm going to do a better job this week. I'm going to get my stuff together today, and I'm really going to buckle down, and I'm going to obey God, and he's finally going to be pleased with me. He already was pleased with you. You don't work up to assurance by your performance. You work from assurance by your performance. It's inverted completely from what the world would impose on you. And what so many churches, I think, get wrong. And grace scares them because they think somehow you're removing a powerful incentive for obedience. You're not. You're usurping one that wasn't powerful at all. <laughs> With a more powerful one, right? 
oh man, I hope this is making sense. We're just, listen guys, we're just scratching the surface of what this chapter talks about. I, w- I want to tell you another, another verse that the Apostle Peter wrote about the Apostle Paul. Don't you love it when one apostle talks about another apostle? This is what the Apostle Peter said about Paul's writings. He said, Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, these are some, there are some things in them, he's talking about Paul's letters, that are what? Hard to understand. You know what I believe Peter has in mind when he wrote that? Romans 7. <laughs> I believe he has that in mind. This is hard to understand. That's why I took a four-week break from Romans so that I could understand it. And I think I do. Man, this is, a, this is a glorious discovery for all of us. And this is a deep end of the swimming pool. And we're all going to swim through it together. We're going to need several weeks to do that. So be patient with me. Um, we're going to come back. And, and I want to wrap this up next time. Did I get to the last point? I did, didn't, didn't I? I, did, I, well, I kind of did. Here's the last point, okay? And we'll, and we'll dig deeper next week. God offers release into a new, better way of life. Do you know you died to the law? How did you die? You died with Christ. Whatever happened to Jesus by virtue of your union with him happened to you. You died to sin. Sin didn't die. You died. And the law didn't die. You died. Man, that is worth like a month of sermons, but I'm only going to give you a couple on it, okay? The law didn't need to change. You needed to change, and God changed you. And now you're married to him. You have a much more powerful incentive for obedience, a much more powerful motivation for obedience. And what happens in the Christian's life is, is we, we go back to the law and we cling to it, just like the children of Israel went back to Egypt. <laughs> we think that it was better back there. We had it made. No, you didn't have it made. That was bitter fruit. That was stinky fruit. You weren't happy. God wasn't happy. The people around you weren't happy. And, and I, man, I always say I'm closing with this. I'm going to make one application, okay? Seriously, this is an application. And I, and I, I, and I hope this makes sense to you. And, and we're family. So this is like moment of honesty time. If you get mad at me, that's okay. We do things at this church a lot different than some churches do. I'm going to give you an illustration, okay? We need a lot of help right now in this church serving. Did you guys know that? We, 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 we need ambassadors. We use that word ambassador because an ambassador is representing King Jesus everywhere they are in every situation they're in, no matter where they go or what they do. They're always an ambassador. We need ambassadors here. We need help in the back, teaching children. We need help in the front, greeting people. We need help setting up. It takes a massive effort to get this, congreg- to get this campus ready to receive guests and to receive our congregation. And it takes a kind of massive effort to put everything away and clean up when we're done. And, and, and right now, we, we, some of our people that have been doing this the last several years, they, they have to have a break. They're getting burnt out. And, and here's what, what I'm getting to. Here's the way a lot of churches would manage this. They would say, okay, hey, listen up. Shame on you. Shame on all of y'all for not helping, for not signing up. We need help. And you need to sign up. Man, I hope the, the, <laughs> I hope the live stream didn't pop out and then pop back up at the right. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. You know what? We're not going to have children for classes anymore until more of you sign up to help. Now, listen, I could say that in a lot of churches do say that. And you know what would happen? You'd sign up. A lot of you would sign up. I'd get some fruit out of that, wouldn't I? Now, let me ask you a question. Would your serving be joyful? 
No. And when a kid throws up on you or, or a diaper explodes, you know what you would say? I didn't want to do this anyway. I just wanted the pastor to be happy. Now, you can laugh at me. That's the way a lot of people live their Christian life. And that's the way a lot of churches get people to sign up and help. And I ain't doing it here. I'm not ever going to do that because it never works. But I will say this. We need help here. And Jesus died for you. And this is his church. This is his bride. And he's, he's worth the extra effort it would take us to help. We need help in our sound booth up here. We need a lot of help, guys, in a lot of areas. And I pray that as your pastor, I'm always putting before you the most powerful motivation for you to sign up and step up and help, even when it inconveniences you. Um, I'll give you another illustration next week. That's enough for today. Did I, slap, did I smack you around today? I hope I didn't. I hope I, hope, I, hope I put Jesus before you. We, we preach Christ and him crucified. Paul said, I've determined to know nothing among you except that. Why? Because that's the most powerful reality in the world. And if that can't motivate you to obey, I, I will tell you nothing can. Nothing can. There's no hope for you. If, if Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the dead isn't enough to get you out of your seat doing backflips for Jesus and saying, sign me up and throw me to the lions, I'll be singing a hymn, then you're hopeless. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you for these truths. I pray that some of what I've said uh, has made sense, Lord, and, and is tethered to this passage. Prepare our hearts now to receive communion as Matt comes and, and leads us in this portion of the service. And I pray that we would all leave here like a balloon that's been filled with helium. We've been filled with the grace and the love and the mercy of God, Lord. And, and we would live out of gratitude for you. We would obey you, Lord with a happy heart and with a joyful heart. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as Matt comes to leave, I just want to remind you, some of you have children in the back who have professed faith in Christ, and you're going to want to get them uh, to celebrate communion with you. It's a family affair. So as Matt prepares to lead us, uh, you can take the time. The teachers are waiting on you. Matt. Man, what a... uh perfect uh, Sunday to celebrate the Lord's table. Um, I, I'll invite the servers to come up um, if you're ready to pass out the elements and prepare the table. Um, we're dead to the law. Amen. Because of what Jesus did. And this is a time where we simply remember the sacrifice of Jesus. You know, the when Jesus um, celebrated the first Lord's Supper or communion with his apostles. It was a Passover meal. And our kids in the back today actually learned about the Lord's table. Uh, Miss Courtney put together an awesome lesson about the Lord's table. And it's, it's a Passover meal, remembering when the, the Israelites were in Egypt, right? And the 10th plague, the angel of death came. But if you painted the blood of the lamb on your doorpost, what happened? He passed over. And now we, we remember the blood of Jesus is what covers us. And the wrath of God passes over us, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has sacrificed for us. So as they prepare the, the elements in the table, I just want to remind you three things. This is what we told the kids this morning in the back. If anything's unclear, ask them, they'll tell you. I want, I want us to reflect and look back on the sacrifice of Jesus. I want us to remember what he's done. I want us to look to the present and how God, through his Holy Spirit, is preserving us as his people. And we're also looking forward to the final marriage supper of the Lamb, 
when we will eat this again and drink this cup again with Jesus, when he has brought history to its culmination and he has done away with all sin and all evil. Um, so let's reflect on these things as we, as we partake together. I'll read from Luke 22, verse 14 says, And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at the table and his apostles with him. He said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine, until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup. After they had eaten, he said, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. We are in a new covenant, not the covenant of Moses under the law. We are in the covenant of grace. And as we eat, if you would take the, the bread... Jesus says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Let's eat in remembrance of him. And so he took the cup, the blood of the covenant. Let's drink this in remembrance of him. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for this new covenant. God, thank you that we are dead to sin. We are dead to the law, that you came and changed us. 
that you saved us, that you spilt your blood, you broke your body for us, Lord. Thank you for your sacrifice. May we remember you through this bread, through this cup, Lord. God, that you loved us so much that you died for us. God, may we live in this new covenant, in the freedom that you offer. Lord, and may we look forward to the day where you'll come back again for your people. And we will eat the final marriage supper of the Lamb in celebration of all that you've done and all that you've accomplished for us, Lord, and and for your name and for your glory. Amen. So after the uh, apostles ate, it says in the the scriptures that they sang a hymn. So that's what we will do. We'll sing together. You guys want to stand and worship? Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. You know what a full taste of glory divine, an heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of His Spirit and washed in His blood. Cause this is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all my day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all my day long. Perfect submission. Perfect delight and visions of rapture now burst on my sight. And angels descending will bring from above his echoes of mercy. In his whispers of love. This is my story. Cause this is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Cause this is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long.
perfect submission all is at rest and I in my Savior am happy and blessed just watching and waiting looking above my story this is my song I'm praising my Savior all the day long this is my story God this is my song Father God, we just praise you for what you've done for us on the cross, Father, and releasing us from the law, Father, and just changing our heart and the way we perceive it as freedom, and just we just want to love you, and we just want to serve you out of the goodness of our heart, Father, because of what you've done for us, not because we have to, but because we love you, Father. Thank you for opening our eyes to your truth, Father, and your goodness, and your patience, and your love, and your kindness for us, Father God. Just pray that we are able to turn that back on you, Father, and give you glory and honor and praise, and we are able to uh, carry your presence out to your people, Father God. And we just love you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can take a quick seat. Just a couple of announcements before we are dismissed. Uh, this Saturday, April 9th, is our Eureka event for our kids, kindergarten through fifth grade. Oh, the screen's back up. Awesome. I was going to have to try to say the charge from memory, and I, I wasn't sure if I was uh, ready for that pop quiz, um, but we have the screen. Um, so Eureka, this Saturday, it's going to be at Faith Bible Church. It's literally right around the corner off of Howland Boulevard. Um, for the details of the address and all of those things, again, that Church Center Grace Life app is where you'll go for that. Um, it's from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. Drop your kid off, enjoy a, a little brunch date or something, and and uh, they'll experience an awesome time of being taught about Easter, and there'll be an Easter egg hunt. It'll be, it'll be a fun time this Saturday, April 9th. Um, also, first Sundays. Today's a first Sunday. We are collecting um, for Deltona High School. Miss Marcy Hare was here a couple weeks ago, and we heard her share about the students here who are in housing transition and who need help. Um, so if you have brought something this Sunday, you can drop it in the lobby. If you forgot, it's not too late. Feel free to drop any items. It's um, like granola bars, any hygiene products. Um, you can drop it by the church office, and we'll get it over to the high school for you. We'll be at the office Tuesday through Friday. Swing by um, if you forgot about it today. And we would just love to serve those students of Deltona High in that way. Um, I also We don't have a slide for this. I also want to throw in camp. Summer camp for students is coming up. The deadline is not this Friday, but next Friday to sign up. Um, so just keep that in mind. Again, if you have any work 
for these students. If you'd like to help them uh, raise money for camp, please let me know. Um, or if you want to give any scholarship funds or anything, you can do that through the church app as well. Um, also, this Saturday is the concert. If anybody signed up for the Hillsong Chris Tomlin concert, you'll be getting an email this week with all the details of, of meeting at the church office and all that. And if you want to go, uh, you can still buy a ticket and drive with us. You just won't be sitting with us, but that's okay. Um, that's this Saturday. All right, so if you will stand with me, we will read our charge, and we will be dismissed. Let's read it together. I am a witness. I've been called to minister to my neighborhood in both word and deed. God has given me his word to equip me, his spirit to empower me, and his love to motivate me. I pledge my life for the gospel. You have been sent 